Welcome to Deep Dive from the Japan Times. I'm Sean McKenna. On today's show, we're talking about art. Japan Times culture critic Tu Hung Ha will be joining us to discuss two articles she wrote recently, both of them reviews. One on the dream house of avant garde artist Marina Abramovich, that's located in or very close to Tokamachi Niigata Prefecture. The other was the Gwangju Biennale in South Korea. But we're also going to talk about her experience as a critic, the role art criticism plays in our culture, and what the implications of AI generated art might be on that role. And I just want to take a moment to humbly request that if you like what you hear, then please rate and review this podcast. It helps others discover us more easily. And feel free to follow us at, at Japan Deep Dive on Twitter. Everyone interprets art differently, and we'd love to hear what you think on these pieces or any artworks that have had an impact on you lately. Anyway, on to the discussion. Hello, too. Hi, Sean. First of all, my apologies to listeners. We were off last week because I took a trip to Mount Koya in Wakayama Prefecture. Where are you up to there? A much deserved mental health break. A friend of mine runs a yoga and meditation business called Mindfully More. A little plug there, sorry. And she organized a trip to Mount Koya to stay at a temple and commune with nature and all that. She's doing another one in September. If anybody listening is interested, it's all in English. Did you have your phone? Okay, so I tried to do no phones, but I inevitably got sucked into the Sean. drama about <laughs> Wagner and I don't think you understand. <laughs> and then I had to use it for the uh, New York Times spelling bee app. <laughs> what did you do there? We stayed at a temple called Yochian um, and woke up at 4.30 every day to do yoga at sunrise in the temple complex. It's really peaceful. Um, we also did night tours of the temples and toured Okinawan Cemetery, where there's a lot of famous samurai buried. But more importantly, Mount Koya is where the monk Kukai is enshrined. Uh, and the monks there believe he is not dead, but in a state of eternal meditation. Yeah, I think I saw him wandering around. You did? <laughs> have you been to Koya-san? I have. I found it to be very peaceful and strict. Okay, strict. <laughs> I get that, but explain <laughs> I think that's how they keep it so peaceful. There is a sense, I think, there is like a sacredness that's like maintained by not letting people be like loud or like there's like no tomfoolery allowed. Mm -hmm. um, I say strict because I think that like they've let tourists in, but I think it's not really meant to be a place for tourists. So they have to be like extra sort of mean. Right, right, <laughs> right. Careful. Yeah, I've been to a lot of temples and shrines in Japan, but this place like just feels more serious. And you can really feel the impact that Buddhism has on Japan when you're there. Mm. Um, the only other time I've ever had such a strong sense of religion and its power um, was kind of like when I visited Il Duomo in Florence, Italy. Mm. Yeah. Did you do the waterfall meditation? Yes, Mizugyo. Yeah, so we had to stand, well, squat under a waterfall because the waterfall was kind of short. And uh, we repeated the sutra Namudaishi Henjo Kongo, which is in honor of Kukai. The more daring of us tried the longer heart sutra. Anyway, it was very peaceful. I feel nice and refreshed coming back to my usual pile of work. But, you know, too, you and I are here today to talk about a different kind of retreat. Yes, we are. You went to Marina Abramovich's dream house in Niigata, and you wrote about the experience in an article titled, not so subtly, 
16 hours in Marina Abramovich's Nightmare Hotel. What is that? Is that like a three-star review? <laughs> I think if there had been a business hotel in the area, I might have preferred that. Oh, okay. Well, first, can you tell us who Marina Abramovich is? Like, why did you want to spend a night in her dream house? Want to? I don't know. Um, <laughs> um, I felt very drawn when I found out about this uh, piece of art. So Marina Abramovich is probably the world's most famous performance artist. She's been practicing since the 1970s. She is boundary-pushing pretty controversial and does these kind of great feats of like physical endurance for her works. Mm. She famously cut a pentagram into her stomach with a razor and then like beat herself, then laid down on a cross made of ice. Uh, She walked for three months along the Great Wall of China for a breakup, which sounds made up, but is true. Um, And I found out that she had built this house in Niigata, prefecture and i had never heard of it before Um, and it turned out to be there like since 2000 so i was sort of digging around and couldn't really find very much information about it um it turned out that it was built for the echigo tsumari triennale Mm -hmm. for the inaugural edition in 2000 and they've just kept it open ever since i saw photos and they just looked so wild and spooky um and i had to go why is it called a dream house hmm good question sounds really nice it's more like a nightmare house um the idea is that you stay there overnight and you go through a series of actions laid out by marina and you are meant to have more enhanced dreams which you then record in a book there in the house Hmm. so what what was it like like what were the actions like how did it compare to say my yoga temple on mount koya um well it was pretty strict so First of all, it's a little far. It's probably four or five hours from Tokyo and then another 30-minute drive. We get there. We park at this really creepy shed. There were these old guys on the street who were like, are you sure about this? (laughs) And I was like, what? Oh, my gosh. The harbingers (laughs) in every horror movie. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, we see this, like, kind of rundown uh, house. And um, I was like, yeah, it's going to be fine. And then I look through, like, the slats and I see there's, like, something, like, scrawled on the walls in like what looks like blood um and i was like "Mm, maybe not gonna be that chill (laughs) um but then there were these like really nice caretakers there and uh they explained many rules to me and my friend oh there are rules oh man sean there were so many rules (laughs) what were some of the rules (laughs) um you know you had to bathe a certain way you were not allowed to smoke drink have sex she said no indecent behavior Um, And also not to talk. Right. Okay. You're not allowed to speak. Yes. Well, I mean, with apologies to Marina, we did talk for journalism, but um, (laughs) it it said not to uh, speak aloud. Yeah. And just just uh, for the listeners, um, you went there with a friend who took photos for the story. Is that right? Uh, Yeah, I went with my friend Andrea. Um, I think also before the pandemic, there would have been uh, meals provided, but not when we went. So you had to bring your own dinner then? Oh, we went out for dinner, yeah. Okay. What do you eat when you uh, are going to a dream house? Like, I've read that foods rich with vitamin B6 and tryptophan actually enhance your dreams. So that would maybe be chicken, soybeans, turkey? I think we had sashimi. Okay. (laughs) I'll I'll be honest. I've had the worst dreams I've had ever in my life, I think, came right after eating Lay's sour cream and onion chips. Oh, right. And I thought it was a coincidence. And then my sister told me that, like, 20 years earlier, the exact same thing had happened. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> okay. from the same chips. There's something in the sour cream and onion then. Be warned. 
Okay, dinner's done. What comes next? <laughs> so after dinner, the, the real action starts. First, there's a, an extremely creepy bath. It's actually two copper bathtubs that look out of like a steampunk murder chamber. Okay. Um, they're very deep, you know, good for murdering people in. Um, one is hot and one is lukewarm. And in the lukewarm one, you put all these herbs that have been left behind inside. And the whole room is tiled with these tiny white tiles, like um, floor to ceiling. And it's just creepy. So, so creepy, Sean. And so do you have to like step into the hot one first and then go into the lukewarm? Is, or is it yeah, you is have it to like do a it. process? There's a specific order. It's the hot one first. Um, there's this, quote, pillow, um, which is basically a rock um, that you're supposed to lean against. It's made of quartz. Oh, right. And I'm pretty short, so I couldn't like rest in there comfortably so i just kept floating up and it was very uncomfortable um so after the bath Mm -hmm. it's time to get into the pajamas okay each person has to choose from one of four colored bedrooms and there's pajamas that go with each color what are the four colors the bedrooms are blue green purple and red Mm. and the pajamas are for some reason slightly different okay (laughs) I chose green because at night, it just seemed a little less murdery than the other ones. Right. Good choice. And my pajamas were pale yellow. First, you have to put um, this like stocking type of like onesie on that's like white. And it just, it's very constricting and synthetic and it's very hot in there. What is the pajamas like? They look like Teletubby outfits. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) If you can picture that. I can totally picture that. Yeah. (laughs) Like a onesie with a hood and kind of. Like you look like a giant teddy bear almost. I was told that the house was designed to be able to accommodate foreign men. That's how it was put. Right. So the Teletubby suits were massive. Um, <laughs> and I was just like drowning in this like floppy, flappy pool of fabric. Um, it was really hard to move around. And I was very worried about tripping and like breaking my neck. Um, and then on top of all that, there's these 12 weights that you have to put into the suit. And there's like little pockets all around the pajamas. And once you slip those into like their little sleeves, it's there's only one thing you can do after that. Is lie down? Is lie down. So what's the bed like? Um, bed is generous. I would say it's more of a coffin. A coffin. <laughs> all right. Is it comfy? It was very uncomfortable. I've never been in a coffin, but it matched exactly what I think a coffin looks like. Yes. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> All right. Did you did you end up like dreaming? I did. I'm not a very good sleeper and I am a very I remember my dreams a lot. And uh yeah, I mean I was kind of like freaked out that I wouldn't sleep and therefore make the entire project like um difficult. <laughs> yeah, why would you be freaked out about sleeping in weighted pajamas in a coffin, you know? Like <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it just seems like really chill, um, matching my home exactly in terms of ideal sleeping conditions. Um, yeah, so, you know, I started to panic and I was like, oh, am I going to do it right? And like, am I getting the art wrong? Or like, am I just going to, I just was like, okay, I need to sleep um, in order to complete my job. <laughs> I shouldn't think too hard about the murder outside my window. Um, and in the closet, I, I I relented. I knew that there was like an emergency bedding thing in the closet um you could sleep on the floor on like a regular food time i didn't go that far i just took out like a pillow right um because the pillow in the coffin was also a piece of rock right okay so i took out a pillow and i took out a blanket and tried to get like medium comfortable enough that i would sleep and i did 
Right. Um, and I did dream, yeah. And so I, I wrote my dreams down in the book and I read other people's um, dreams at that point and they were, um, a lot of people were like, why did you do this to me? <laughs> why did I do this to myself? Why did I pay money? What did you think about the experience overall? You know, like I plugged the yoga retreat at the top of the show. So are you <laughs> plugging this? Um, I would not recommend this. <laughs> I think if you're a really good sleeper and you have some extra cash and you want to do like a very strange, very scary art installation sleepover, mm -hmm. this is the event for you. Right. I think what makes a Marina Abramovich piece is seeing her physically live put herself through something pretty intense, pretty extreme. Mm -hmm. And this obviously doesn't have that. And then another important element I think of of seeing her work live is that there's all these other people there kind of just kind of a communal like uh, shock and horror that also isn't present here right um so i think that as a as a, a marina abramovich experience i would say it might be better to read about it instead So on the podcast maybe two weeks ago, I mentioned another piece you wrote that I think flew under the radar bit, a review of the Gwangju Biennale in South Korea titled Losing and Finding My Cool in Gwangju. So you went there in April, yeah? That's right. So I went to uh, Gwangju, which is in the southwest of South Korea. It's the oldest and a lot of people consider it the most important uh, contemporary art festival in Asia. It was started in 1995. It's in its 14th edition. And it was originally um, started as a commemoration of the Gwangju Uprising, which is a very important set of events that happened in um, the 1980s in South Korea's democratic development. Uh, this year's theme was soft and weak like water. How'd they come up with that theme? Is there any significance to it? Um, so this year's curator of the Biennale was Lee Sukyung. She was at the time working at the Tate Modern in London. And, and actually next year, she's going to be the first ever non-Japanese curator for the Japan Pavilion at the Venice Biennale, which is the biggest Biennale in the world. Mm. The theme is a quote from The Way of the Tao by Lao Tzu. So with the Biennale, um, everything would be spread out, right? Like it's a whole experience? Yes. Unlike the Dream House, it's really spread out all over the city and it's, it's hard to navigate and it's also hard to, to write about. Right. What kind of pieces were there? Did you see anything you liked? Yeah. So, I mean, something I was really impressed by was there wasn't this heavy focus on Americentric and Eurocentric artists. Um, the art world can feel very centered in specific cities, New York, Paris and London mm. specifically. Uh, so I, I was really impressed by the curation in that sense. I really liked an installation by Yuko Mori. She's actually going to be representing Japan at the Venice Biennale next year. She does these really fun sort of musical sculpture installations. So hard to describe art. <laughs> <laughs> um, we have audio from this. She does these really fun installations that are kind of alive with movement. It'll be like a xylophone playing itself, uh, a typewriter, you know, typing through reams of paper. Um, and I really, I really liked that. I also really liked this installation by an artist from Guatemala named Edgar Kalel. He set up um, these, it was a big spread of these, of these rocks. 
And on top of them, he put um, fruit. And he, at the opening of the Biennale, he lit incense and did a sort of like ritual, um, like offering to his ancestors, his Mayan ancestors. And so as time passes in the exhibit, you know, the, the fruit starts to rot um, and it has this really pungent smell, um, as you can imagine. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just personally, I, I associate rotting fruit and um, incense with my ancestors because um, okay. that's how we <laughs> pray to them as we light incense as well. Right. Um, so, yeah, I, I really liked that. Um, I liked it visually and sort of had a personal resonance with it for me as well. Okay. So that's interesting that you say that because, you know, reading the Biennale review, I didn't come out of it kind of remembering the art as much. Um, <laughs> and it was more like... Um, you know, the piece had a lot of detail about Guangzhou's history, the politics of the art, but it also went into a good deal of your own experiences, not even with the art, but with the theme of the Biennale itself. What was behind the choice to write the piece that way? Yeah, I'm not sure everyone liked my choice, but it was definitely a choice. Um, you know, I've I've tried to take an opportunity to think about how to approach art criticism for our readers, for the Japan Times readers. You know, I also write about books, and um, when it comes to books and um, music, film, kind of know what readers want, which is at a baseline, like, should I buy this thing, listen to this thing, read this thing? You know, uh, it's like, it's straightforward. But with live events like art, theater, opera, um, it's it's much harder to, in my opinion, to, to know what the purpose of that is. And I started writing about art during COVID. Um, I was in Japan. And I was writing about like pop-ups that were like two, three days long. And it was like, is anyone going to be able to see this? Mm. I mean, you can't even get into the country. So, you know, it just started to take on this very inaccessible, you know, art is already to some people very elitist, very inaccessible. And I wondered, you know, why? Why do we do this? Um, and, and what could we do better? So I wanted to try to take out the kind of dutiful element of it. It's like, okay, this this happened here's what A, B, C, and like, here's what I thought. And I'm not sure that I necessarily got it right, but I think that I wanted to see if I could, to emulate some of the people that I really admire, who put themselves a little bit more into the into the criticism. And not to say like a, it's not like a personal essay strictly, where you're just sort of like blogging about your feelings, but hopefully to give people a way of seeing art that is highly personal, with the hope that they could do it for themselves when they when they see art. Mm. I do think that um, people should read the piece on its own. <laughs> um, but I have to say, you know, also that's kind of what you just laid out. That was why I like the piece. Um, I spoke to people about it and they all had different reactions. Um, like our deep dive producer, Dave Cortez and I, we discussed it for quite a long time over coffee. And we were, you know, mentioning the writing style and who these characters from your past were that you were bringing in. Um, and we both came away from it remembering those more personal aspects. Should we have come out of it speaking more about the art? <laughs> I don't know. But I feel like, you know, discussing the story for that length of time, maybe it's because we know you, but I really think that speaks to the article's own status as a piece of art. However, when you're writing as a critic, how much of yourself do you think you should put into a story? Well, I'm so glad that <laughs> you guys spent time talking about it. That <laughs> um, you know, I think that is the aim is to um, engage people who are not necessarily just coming to read about what one person thinks about a piece of art. And I think it's also important to realize that critics of across all ranges of media are 
biased. Um, they have their own biographies. They have their own whims. They have their own tastes. And uh, we shouldn't ignore that. Um, and I feel that sometimes in these strictly, quote, objective art reviews or these more slightly more tending toward academic, like, in, you know, art magazines for art people. Right. It really takes on this like very dry tone that makes it seem like overly authoritative. Mm. And I think if you introduce the narrator a bit more as someone who's experiencing the art in a, I don't want to say an authentic way, but I just think that most people don't approach art in, with that critic's hat on. And I think that's very important to the experience of art. Do you think that's even more so in the social media age where kind of like there's an emphasis on the person that's delivering the news? I mean, that's a really good point. I think that when we talk about like personality, you know, mm. when, when it's not just like a, a strong narrator, but an actual like a face and a, and a celebrity and a, and a personality, I do think that people, you know, for, for better or worse, I do think that people gravitate toward that. Um, they know who they're listening to. They can see the face of the person and it almost becomes like a cult of that person, um, right. which, you know, again, it's good or bad. But I do think that people have something more to hold on to when there's that strong narrator. Mm. Another thing I think that worked about the piece was that you made this kind of like inner conflict that you were going through relate to the broader political context of Guangzhou as a city and the event itself. Can you talk about that a little bit more? Yeah, I agree with what you said. You know, I really love um, for any interested readers to to check out the piece directly because it's a it's a little bit hard to sum up, but I'll try. Mm. So I think you know, with this theme about water um, and and the way of the Tao, sort of arguing for non action as action, passivity as action, and I thought about that from my own life as being someone with a little bit of a short fuse. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I think it's different for people who meet me now, but. I can get a bit like quite fiery. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking through the piece about like the way that we all deal with our own anger. And um, and I was, you know, always really jealous of these super calm, hyper rational guys in my classes who seem to get whatever they wanted just by almost like doing nothing. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to relate that to this conflict that exists within the event, which is that um, this really important, violent uprising that was a defining moment for not only for the city, but um, for the country. There's actually the Guangzhou spirit is something that is often referred to as this kind of this activist sort of democratic spirit. Mm. Well, in line with that kind of like fiery spirit, you also mentioned in the piece an act of protest that happened like while you were there. Can you explain to us what went down? Yeah, I actually didn't notice it because it was a very minor protest, okay. but um, but it, it did make the news regarding this Biennale. So let me just back up and, and explain. So a very famous Korean artist named uh, Park Seobo, who's very well established, had um, started a prize that was going to be given out every year at the Biennale. And then after this year's award was given out, they just canceled it. And the reason they gave was that there was this backlash. Um, maybe it wasn't like a huge protest, but there was this undercurrent of backlash saying that the artist who had established the prize was not enough of a... He basically didn't have the Guangzhou spirit. He didn't support the the riots and the protests enough. And they actually, they canceled it for that reason. I mean, maybe there's something else going on there, but that was the purported reason. Mm. Um, and I thought that was very interesting move and and it highlighted this kind of this tension i think in kind of the reason for this this festival is 
you know, this Guangzhou spirit, this democratic movement, this um, this class struggle. Um, but at the same time, you know, an art festival is going to be elitist on some level. Mm. <laughs> um, and this theme of sort of action through non-action um, and this, this softness and this this water, it was an interesting curatorial choice. And I think it came out in the art, but as a a greater experience. I think it just gave me a lot more to think about than I think a, a typical one would, and a lot more to write about. That fire and that water and trying to balance the two inside, that did really speak to me. Well, when it comes to art, then, what have you been interested in recently? Well, the art world loves new things. Um, and I think that right now what a lot of people are interested in is AI-generated media. As a consumer of culture and a person who values creativity and um, someone who knows how hard it can be to be an artist, I'm interested in those questions uh, regarding AI-generated media. I'm not sure I'm actually interested in looking at any of it. Okay. Wait, can you expand on that a little? <laughs> so far, it's not that compelling as original art. Um we tend to focus on how cool it is that the tech can imitate something that we know about or mash up two things that we know about um, into something kind of new. Mm. If you remember last year in the winter, um, there was this very, very trendy social media thing called Magic Avatars um, made by this photo app called Lenza mm. that um, would let you upload photos of yourself and it would spit out avatars of, you know, you in the style of Harry Potter, you as an anime character, you mm. like... Uh, as a watercolor. And I think it was neat. Um, and it was really fun to see like my friends in these different styles. Um, but I didn't really think that these were a amazing pieces of art. And then there's been these huge advancements with the programs at Dolly and Stable Diffusion. And the stuff that they can do, you know, you put in these prompts, and it instantly can sort of um, create these photorealistic images or true to the prompt. And in the beginning, I think people were like, wow, it's so real. It's so accurate. It did what I said. Um, and I feel like we kind of got over that um, really fast and shockingly right. fast. And now, I mean, at least what I find fun about it is like the kind of the prompts that people are putting in. I think I saw one photo of an emo sausage roll sitting at a bus stop in the rain waiting for a bus that may never <laughs> arrive. So I think that in this sense, like what becomes fun about it is the creativity of the prompt, um, not necessarily like looking at the execution as um, as a work of art itself. Right. The art of the prompt. OK. Mm, yeah. So you're saying is like AI kind of just a bit boring then? <laughs> I think maybe that's by design. Um, so there's a digital artist and digital culture critic named Lev Manovich who um, points out that, you know, the programs are designed to be accurate and imitative. Um, it's not a bad thing. You know, lots of, you know, centuries of oil paintings are actually the art of copying. Well, look at all the uh, remakes that Hollywood <laughs> is doing right <laughs> <Touché>. now. <laughs> but I think that the way that we've become used to consuming art um, really focuses on, like, uniqueness and, like, boldness of vision and, you know, breaking the form, et cetera, et cetera. When photography started becoming really accessible, a lot of critics at that time were wondering if we were going to lose this idea of like authenticity and aura and originals. And, um, you know, I think a lot of those ideas have really stuck around. We didn't abandon them because we had photography and um, reproduction was really, really easy. So I think that we do still kind of cling to this cult of like 
cult of the artist, you could call it. I mean, I think it's a, it, it is a holdover from modernist art, and and you could you could definitely say that there's a lot of gatekeeping that happens as a result of this. But I do think to come back to this AI question is the AI is not being trained to take all the information that it consumes and create a bold new vision. So I think in that sense, like we're not really quite seeing things that are interesting in that way. You know, I kind of felt like most of the images I was seeing from generative media sources were like um, surreal, like a duck in a suit, or maybe it was kind of like closer to Dadaism. Well, right. I mean, that's an existing art form, right? It's not creating a new one. Mm. It's creating something Mm. familiar to you. Yeah. What do you think as a critic, would you kind of get excited about an AI-only exhibition? It really depends. I mean, it could be really exciting. I haven't seen one yet that I wanted to see. (laughs) Why not? It just looks like screensavers in a gallery. I'm not really sure if I want to pay for that. But yeah, I, I definitely don't want to write it off either. So is this all a lot of doom saying and there's like not actually a risk to developing these technologies? Well, I think that the biggest concern that's voiced from um, creative people is that, first of all, a lot of these AI were trained on images that artists made that didn't give their permission. Um, and so now the reason the AI is so sophisticated is it used the intellectual property of people who didn't give their permission mm-hmm. um, and didn't get compensated for it. That's a, That was kind of the initial backlash from artists and creative people. And then, of course, there's, you know, job viability in the future. I think that there's a lot of people, visual artists, anyone who does like commercial work to sustain um, their livelihood, you know, animators, concept artists, illustrators who do movie art um, or credits, they they can just be replaced like mm-hmm. really quickly. And it's it's already a pretty difficult industry, as you can imagine. We don't really value our artists and our creative people. It just makes it all the less sustainable. Mm. But, you know, I'm not like a the Luddite and I'm, I don't think like you just need like the only legitimate artist is one who's like toiling away with their oil paints like day and night. Like, I think it's a very compelling tool and we shouldn't just, you know, write it off per se. You know, like I don't, I don't use TikTok, but like I think it's amazing. <laughs> like I use TikTok like an adult <laughs> two weeks late and on Instagram. <laughs> I also use use t- TikTok on Instagram. Um, I think what it's brought out, and I kind of felt this way about Snapchat, but less so, is that just like it's a creative constraint, um, and so people ha- have this little tiny, you know, screens that they're working in um, or that they're going to present themselves in and they have to work within this like very strict confines they have a certain number of seconds they have a certain expectation in the medium and just very weird funny stuff comes out of there um i think it's just like you know people are intentionally generating these true aesthetic experiences that kind of surpass our everyday lives and that's just what art is so final question do you think chat gpt is going to take your job I mean, probably. <laughs> um, but what I've seen so far, uh, I don't. I don't think so. I'm not like obviously like a technologist, and um, I'm not deep in there. But I have asked ChatGPT to like review books or TV. Um, at the moment, it says um, it can't give personal thoughts and opinions. Um, so at a basic level, I don't know how it can replace reviewers. Mm. 
it, it can't give a judgment or an evaluation. Um, it can summarize what other people have said, but you know that means that it has to wait for that information to be out there. I've asked it to like produce a book review of things that exist, like not to give its opinion, but to like write a book review mm. of something that exists. And it's everything comes back as like basically PR copy. It's like very breathless and it's like everything is brilliant, impeccable, right. like truly memorable, highly enjoyable, binge-worthy, like sure to leave you entertained. And it, you know, I think that I would be very concerned <laughs> if all of our book reviews started looking like that um, because readers would not know who to trust and whether there was any legitimacy to what they were reading. Um, it, I think it does come back to what we were talking about earlier, which is like, why do people read reviews? And I think if you're looking for, you know, like, you know, is it three out of five stars? Like, should I buy it or shouldn't I? I'm not sure that ChatGPT is going to be able to give you that right now. And then the other thing we were talking about, which is like reviews that are themselves kind of like works of art or like additive in some way. Mm -hmm. I, I really don't think that that's available right now. I'm sure there's a programmer somewhere listening who's like, <laughs> 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 we're coming for you. Um, yeah. But um, for now, this human is going gonna, is gonna to keep working. Well, too, thanks very much for coming back on Deep Dive. It was a brilliant, impeccable, and <laughs> truly memorable conversation. <laughs> thanks very much. <laughs> Thank you. My thanks again to Two. I'll put links to her articles in the show notes. Elsewhere in the Japan Times, the International Atomic Energy Agency endorsed Japan's plan to release treated water from the Fukushima No. 1 nuclear power plant into the Pacific Ocean. The controversial plan was first announced in 2021 and still remains a point of contention. On one hand, Japan and the IAEA show confidence in the filtration system that will be used to keep the discharged water's toxin levels below unsafe levels. On the other hand, reproach from international neighbors and local Fukushima fishermen raise concerns over transparency and reputational damage to the prefecture's seafood. The plan is expected to roll out this summer. In Kyushu, torrential downpours Monday in Kumamoto Prefecture caused a bridge to collapse in the town of Yamato, as 360,000 of the city's residents were ordered to evacuate. 14 other municipalities were given evacuation orders, as well as other areas in neighboring prefectures. And Japan Times staff writer Alex K.T. Martin went to Japan's oldest village, Nanmoku in Gunma Prefecture, where 67.5% of residents are 65 years or older. Japan is currently struggling with how to handle its aging and shrinking population, with Nanmoku offering a glimpse of what the future could look like if authorities don't act soon. Deep Dive is produced and edited by Dave Cortez, with writing and research by Himari Shimans. Our outgoing track was written and produced by Oscar Boyd, and our theme song is by the Japanese musician 4L. Until next time, I'm Sean McKenna. Otsukare-sama. Otsukare-sama.